Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. This is David Shoemaker, and I'd like to welcome you to Living Thelema. This month we're going to be talking about ritual construction methods. My overall goal here is to give you a sense of the basic outline of a well-constructed ritual, basically just drawn from Crowley's writings in Magic and Theory and Practice and elsewhere, um, so that at the end of the segment you'll be able to pick a ritual aim of your choice and uh, and put something together that uh, is going to be pretty uh, powerful and effective. That said, of course, like many of the things we've talked about on these segments, uh, practice really does bring um, greater strength and greater clarity, greater focus, greater efficacy. So, of course, you're going to be practicing ritual, hopefully, for the rest of your life and getting better as you do. Now, before we talk about the components of effective ritual and the different stages of ritual, I want to back up and just talk about uh, the, th- the theory underlying magic power itself and why ritual would be something we would strive to do at all. All of you know Crowley's definition of uh, magic being the art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with will. Um, but let me read you these further words from Liber Libre. To obtain magical power, learn to control thought. Admit only those ideas that are in harmony with the end desired, and not every stray and contradictory idea that presents itself. Fixed thought is a means to an end. Therefore, pay attention to the power of silent thought and meditation. The material act is but the outward expression of thy thought, and therefore hath it been said that the thought of foolishness is sin. Thought is the commencement of action, and if a chance thought can produce much effect, what cannot fixed thought do? So, with this in mind, let's talk about ritual as, among other things, a technique of focusing attention. Uh, This partially explains the importance of the training of the mind through Raja Yoga that's so evident and prominent in uh, the system of AA and elsewhere, and much of Crowley's writing um, across the board. Um, When we ritualize our intention and focus that thought into word and that word into deed thereby, um, we create a structure, a form, and if there's one law of nature that, uh, that we can say universally, observably holds true, is that force follows form. Force will only go where a suitable form exists to contain it. If you build the physical components of electrical circuit, the wires and such, and connect that to a power source, the power flows. If that form of the wires was not correct, if it was not suitable for that force, it wouldn't work. Similarly, we're fashioning ourselves, in the, the big picture of the great work, we're fashioning ourselves into a form suitable for the indwelling light of the angel. But in a day-by-day way, in a microcosmic way, in terms of our, our ritual, um, we must set up the ritual to be a form that will invite a certain force. The effectiveness with which we can do this will depend on our trained ability to focus our attention and intention via symbol, and ritualized action, and all of the other um, correspondences and associations that we may have with a particular idea, whether that be through image or incense or physical uh, accoutrements like magical weapons or talismans and so on. Um, An intelligent use of these ritual forms, practiced use especially, will allow a very precise change in consciousness 
along the lines that, that we desire. Um, so we construct a psychological environment for the building up of these associations, and then we find a way to tap into energy, a, a ecstatic force that can charge that form. And here again is that union of thought, word, and deed which completes the ritual action. Now, there are different types of ritual, of course. Uh, we have dramatic ritual, such as the rites of Eleusis that Crowley performed in uh, 1910, uh, where the, the energy of the ritual is accomplished via the, the drama and the, the embodiment of the particular energies and characters and their interplay and so on. Um, we have um, what I would call unconscious ritual uh, embedded in our culture where we um, collectively engage in patterns of changing energy that we don't think of as, as ritual, but you know, just day-to-day -day living that is ritualized. Um, but what we're going to focus on today is um, classical ceremonial ritual, um, a fairly structured approach that um, Crowley, for example, would have learned in his uh, early association with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and which many orders that have come since have, have elaborated. So again, these techniques we're going to talk about and the structure that I'm laying out is really just a collection of Crowley's thoughts from magic and theory and practice sort of put into a, a package. Um, the first step is a, a preliminary look at the reason you're doing the ritual. You want to explore conscious or unconscious blockages um, to the success of the ritual. Um, ego influences on the desired goal, that is, lust of result that may interfere with the proper execution of the ritual. Um, if you are ambivalent in some way, maybe, maybe more or less unconsciously, a uh, part of you actually doesn't want to succeed, a part of you actually doesn't want to attain the, the supposed desired result, um, you may find it takes the fire out of the ritual, and, and no matter how perfectly you execute it, if your mind's working against you, uh, the mind's working against itself, it uh, will be much less likely to succeed. The second preliminary I want to emphasize is taking practical steps to achieve the aim. Uh, if you spill a glass of water, maybe reach for a towel before you invoke the undines. Uh, if you want a job, put in some applications before you do a ritual uh, of some sort. Um, these steps, in essence, become a part of the ritual. It's not, do I do ritual or do I do practical things to attain the end? It's, do the ritual and part of the ritual is those practical steps. Um, what you're doing there is you're shaping the magical goals in the world of Yetzira. That is, the, the thought and the word, the, the statement to yourself, the conception of the goal, and the statement to yourself of, of that aim, uh, you're linking that to the deed in Asiya. Um, and that deed, here speaking in the practical sense, like putting in the job applications, becomes a concrete magical link to the desired goal. Once you've decided to do the ritual... Um, I recommend you do a brief ceremony or meditation, which is more or less a purification and consecration of your aim. Um, 
Now, remember purification, if you look in uh, Crowley's uh, Liber 150, The Law of Liberty, uh, purity is defined as uh, a state where no alien element intrudes. The thing is purely itself. So with purification of your intention, you're simply washing away any undesirable um, accretions to the central pure aim of the will. And one of the ways you do that is through the processes I've already mentioned in terms of looking for counter impulses and, and uh, ambivalence about the outcome. But you could also develop a, a visualized meditation process where you uh, visualize the, the magical aim as a, an object of some kind that you are uh, ritually washing, you know, literally washing away everything that isn't purely it. And then uh, the consecration of the aim is uh, giving a sense of sacredness to the aim. So link it to your true will. See it as an extension of the will of your holy guardian angel. See it as a step in your path toward union with the holy guardian angel. Make it holy. Uh, the next thing you have to do as a preliminary is, based on the, the aim of your ritual, choose a path on the tree of life. You don't have to use the tree of life, of course, but let's assume that you're following a Western Hermetic path where you want to work with the tree. So choose a path on the tree, uh, Sephiroth or one of the connecting paths, and look up the correspondences from 777 or other sources. Um, these might be incenses, colors, sigils, deities associated with the goal, um, the Hebrew hierarchies of the divine names, the archangels, the angels, and the palaces of Asiya that correspond to the four worlds. Um, and um, the next thing you want to do is consider the timing of the ritual. Uh, if you're doing a ritual related to Mars, for example, you've decided that Mars is an appropriate uh, planet for uh, for the ritual intention, then obviously you want to look astrologically, astronomically really, and see um, that Mars is prominently placed. Um, you might choose a moment when Mars is at a key aspect, uh, such as uh, directly above you or at the horizon. Um, you can also choose the timing of the ritual based on the traditional tides, which are cycles of 24-minute periods starting at sunrise. There's five periods corresponding to the four elements in spirit, and you cycle through, and you can start a fire-related ritual in a fire tatva phase, that sort of thing. Um, some people choose to use the traditional magical hours, where you have certain times of the day that correspond to certain ideas, certain goals, or certain planets, and so on. So those are the preliminaries. After that, uh, we want to move to banishings, purifications, and consecrations of the space and of the, the consciousness of the magician. Uh, some of these are pretty obvious. For banishing, you've got your basic pentagram and hexagram rituals, the star ruby. Um, you can certainly also banish simply what's called banishing by fiat, where you declare that the, the temple is, is clean. There are traditional forms of banishing, like clattering swords, together, gongs, laughter, um, Wittershin circles, really endless possibilities there. The purification and consecration in this context um, are slightly different from what I was describing before in that here you might be 
uh, ritualizing a purification of the space with water and a consecration of the space with fire using water and, and incense, for example. Um, but along the same lines psychologically and, and the intention of clearing away any undue influences as the purification and then uh, making what's left a holy place through the consecration. Uh, next is the general invocation. Um, I liken this to activating the power station. You've got a central power station in your city, and you've got to make sure it's turned on and fully functional. So you want some sort of invocation that has a broadly beneficent power to be that power station. Um, examples would be the preliminary invita invocation from the uh, Goetia, uh, also seen in, in a different form in Liber Samic. Um, things like the first Enochian call, um, some sort of um, middle pillar variation, uh, things like that. Some, something that for you um, really just gets the, the, the power flowing for you. After the general invocation, you want to make the oath or proclamation. That is, you state the purpose of the rite. This, in the thought, word, deed sequence, is the word. You've formulated the thought and you know, the intention of the ritual. Uh, now you align the rite consciously with the final intent via the word. It's a microcosm of the whole idea of the logos and the effect of the logos in the world, the, the word that, that manifests the impulse, the word that embodies the impulse and takes it out into the world. Um, so this could be a sentence or two um, saying, you know, I am Frater or so-and-so and my it is my will to create a talisman of Mars that I may obtain uh, magical power to execute my true will. You know, whatever. You just want to put that into words. Um, now, after this, you move into the specifics of the rite. Here is where you use invocations or other techniques that really tell that power station where it's going to send the force. Which specific house is the electricity going to flow to? And the specific house, of course, is going to correspond to those aims of the ritual, the, the, the sephiroth or the, the paths that you've determined are corresponding to the aims of the ritual. And uh, so you're going to set up your invocations, your specific invocations, to, to do that, to address that energy. So um, one example in uh, poetic form would be Liber Israfel, which uh, is designed to be an invocation of Thoth and a Tehuti. And uh, in that ritual, you can see the, um, the progression from um, imploring the god to appear, and then by the end of it, you're embodying the god. So the, the invocation itself is a process of bringing the god energy into yourself and then embodying it. Other options for the specific invocation would be the specific greater pentagram or hexagram rituals of the particular element or planet or zodiacal region that you're wanting to bring in. Um, and some of my earlier segments on the pentagram and hexagram rituals, I think, have I've clarified uh, a little bit about how that is done. Now, having brought in the general power, having aligned the aim of the right 
with your consciousness in word, with the oath or proclamation, having performed necessary specific invocations to get the specific kind of energy in the room that you need, um, then you've got to find a way to bring that down into some sort of manifestation at the level you need it. Um, basically, the, the, the theory here is that you are using the, the, the idea of the four worlds to bring something, some ineffable energy down into increasingly concrete and manifest form. Um, you can use the color scales for visualization. You can use the idea of interactions between the levels of the hierarchy. Um, for example, if you've established a certain Hebrew hierarchy that you're using in terms of deities and uh, or divine names and um, archangels, angels, and so on, then you can implore the the divine name, the powers behind the divine name, to send forth the archangel, who then is implored to send forth the the angelic choir, and so on, on down the line. Uh, and at each stage of that, you just try to identify as fully as possible with that stage of the process, that through visualization, through an appreciation of the nature of the entity that you're speaking to at the time or trying to bring in, so that by the time you're done, you have completed that, that chain. You've brought the hierarchy down um, to a manifest level. This is a place you can really get creative. Another kind of ritualized example of this was I wanted to do a consecration of a talisman of Jupiter. So several of us had constructed a, a ritual with various specific invocations of, of Jupiter, including hexagram rituals. But um, the climax and sort of the bringing down of the force was to set up a large tree of life um, on the floor and then have all the ritual participants walk down the lightning flash shape on the tree, which you may have seen, while chanting the hierarchy of um, divine names, archangels, angelic choirs repeatedly. So um, several passes down that lightning flash uh, chanting, and then we concluded in, in the west where there was an altar representing Malkuth, and the talisman was there, and we brought that energy down and then, and then all projected that force onto the talisman. So the ritualized actions themselves embody a bringing down of the force. That's just one way to do it, but I thought I'd give uh, an example of, of how that can be ritualized as opposed to simply visualized or done using uh, the names themselves and so on. Now, very importantly, the next step is to find a way to lock in that force, to find a way to make sure that now that you brought this specific force into the room, you can do something with it that has an impact. Um, one of the most common ways of doing this is to consecrate a talisman or to consecrate some uh, food of some kind, a cake of light or a goblet of wine or both, um, as a Eucharist talked a little bit about Eucharist on the, the last segment on um, daily ritual. But um, find some way to lock in that force into something physical. Uh, in the case of a talisman, you can then carry that talisman with you as an embodiment of the force. In the case of a Eucharist, you lock the force into the, the spiritual sustenance and then consume it, taking in that force. Now, um, there are various methods of, of completing that magical link, locking it in. Uh, in the ritual I just described, this consisted of uh, all of us giving 
the sign of the enterer at the talisman at the end, you know, when we come down to the Malkuth altar after coming down the tree multiple times with the chanting and all of that, we had built up that force in ourselves. So we concluded by giving the, uh, the, the name of the palace of Asiya of Jupiter, um, Zedek. And with that name gave the sign of the enterer and projected that force out onto the talisman. Find some way to do it, holding it in your hands, chanting, uh, visualizations, uh, and so on. There are plenty of methods encoded in the Gnostic Mass, for example, that will give you lots of ideas about how to create uh, these sorts of talismans in Eucharist. Once you've got your magical link charged, you want to take great care to protect it. In the case of a Eucharist, this means primarily that you have kept your stated aim in mind and as you consume the Eucharist, you're very mindful of that aim and mindful of the fact that you're taking in that charged essence uh, with the consumption. Uh, In the case of a talisman, what you want to do is protect the talisman. Traditionally, this would be done by wrapping it in uh, black silk or some such um, and do that before you give any banishings, before you close down the space. For example, if you've invoked Jupiter into a talisman, among other ways, by by doing the uh, invoking rituals of Jupiter, the hexagram rituals, then before you do the banishing rituals, you want to wrap that talisman, protect it, uh, or you end up potentially banishing the charge right out of it. Um, The general rule is find some complementary banishing to get rid of whatever force you've invoked, that any residual force that may still be there. Um, this could be the banishing form of whatever pentagram or hexagram rituals you've done. could be a banishing by fiat again. Um, the classic license to depart. I now set free any spirits which may have been imprisoned by this ceremony. Depart ye in peace under your abodes and habitations. Be there a peace between us and be ye ready to come when called. Something like that. Um, the exact wording can vary, but, you know, use your right ingenium in that manner. Um, and then once the, the temple is closed down, residual energy is, is done, preferably before anything else happens, before you leave the room even, enter the results into your magical diary. I think you'll find that wherever your head is at, right at the moment of concluding that ritual, it's going to be much more possible to record um, thoughtfully and fully the results, the experiences that you had during the ritual, the uh, the subtleties of effect at different phases, the uh, the particular things you might notice that will help you in the future to remember which aspects of technique worked the best for you, which didn't, uh, and so on. That's going to be freshest for you before you even walk out of the room. So I suggest you you enter into the diary uh, before you do anything else, before you even leave. Well, that's a pretty uh, pretty fair summary of what I wanted to present today, and I hope this has been useful for you. I know it was kind of a whirlwind tour of these stages of ritual, but um, I think you'll find this is a, a skeleton framework that you can expand infinitely as you grow and experience, as you find those things that you can plug into each of these modules of ritual, each of these stages. Um, and I think, as I said, with continued practice and 
your own careful observation and notation of results, you will become a much more powerful magician. So hope this was helpful for you. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please write to me at livingthelema at me.com. And please visit livingthelema.com for additional resources and my bio if you want to learn more about my work. Thanks for listening. Love is the law. Love under will. <laughs>